Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So we wake to the news of the death of Stephen Sondheim. I'm saying, Mark, that's the way to go. Do you know the details? 91 years old. Died at home. 91. Died at home. Four days ago, he'd given an interview to the New York Times, celebratory interview. You know, if ever a man, you know, lived to see his lap of honor many times, it was Stephen Sondheim. Gave an interview to the New York Times, came into New York uh, to be there at the opening of another revival of his uh, 70s musical company. And also to go to two other plays. It was kind of clapped around Broadway pretty much all the way. And this was just before he died, wasn't it? Just before he died. Yeah, a couple of days or whatever. And, uh, and uh, you know, they're, they're looking forward to it. Uh, there's a new revival of West Side Story uh, film uh, coming coming soon. Just absolutely extraordinary. 91 years old. What what an innings. What an extraordinary that really body is of work. taking a final bow, isn't it? Final it really is. And I was thinking about, do you remember when we had Andy Miller as our guest on Word in Your Ear and when, where they were picking out the greatest music books? Yeah. And Andy Andy suggested one that was completely new to me, which is Finishing the Hat by Stephen Sondheim. And I actually went and looked it out in the library. It's an absolutely extraordinary large format book, which is a memoir of all of his all of his career, but it's also chock full of fantastic craft advice for songwriters. And Sondheim, nobody thought more, it seems to me, than Sondheim about the business of putting words together with music, you know, that it wasn't just a question of doing good words and doing good music. It was a question of how he locked them together. And one of his quotes is that there's a big difference between poetry and lyrics is that lyrics should sort of fade into the background. They fade on the page and they live on the stage. And because it's all about the music, it's all about how you oh, put the two wonderful. together. And he said one of his earliest successes was, of course, he wrote the lyrics for West Side Story. And, um, and probably, arguably, the best-known song from West Side Story is Somewhere. And, and he, but throughout his life, he always used to regret the fact that if you listen to the first line of, of um, somewhere, it's just, there's a place for us. And he says, 
I've put all the emphasis and the highest note on the least important on, word on in the, the word, line. The word, the, the word ah, A. And it, it used to vex him absolutely all the time. And he says, he said, um, you don't get a chance to hear a lyric twice. And if it doesn't sit and bounce when the music bounces and rise when the music rises, the audience become confused. And that's so true because, you know, his songs were quite complicated ideas. And so you had to hear them perfectly the first time. Otherwise, you simply wouldn't get the idea at all. And uh, no, absolutely, absolutely extraordinary person. He also said, art is all about craft, not inspiration. And that's that. That's mm -hmm. a true fact. It's all about, you know, how you keep on doing it, how you keep on trying to trying to solve the puzzle not how you sit there and wait for a shaft of inspiration to come from above. Extraordinary life. Stephen Sondheim. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Dave, 37 years ago yesterday, oh um, where were we? <laughs> do, you, do you remember this? 37, 37 probably years ago the, yesterday, West London. Probably, probably at the Bonboniera Cafe at the top of Carnaby Street. Um, Sitting there talking about the smash it's lunch break, yeah. It's lunch break <laughs> with Neil Tennant having apple pie and custard, fog of cigarette smoke, hissing steam from the tea urn. Go but on, uh, carry our on. Our ad man Rod's ordering yes. a rare steak, saying, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's all good. Vet could have that back up on his feet in 10 minutes. <laughs> you know? um, no, we were at Psalm West Studios, weren't we? In oh, uh, right. West London, it was Band Aid. Recording a bandit. I'm trying to remember now what happened. I can remember we got a call saying that Bob Geldof was assembling various musicians and they were going to make a single. We didn't know much about it, really. You were doing a little clip for Whistle Test. I was writing. Well, Mike Hamilton Whistle Test said, I want you to go down there, Bob Geldof. And we everybody raised their eyebrows. Bob Geldof. Because at that point, you know, they were deader than, than a dead thing. They were, um, Absolutely. Bob Geldof is making a charity record. And we just thought, this is not going to happen at all. But anyway, I'd like you to go down there with the film crew. It was a Sunday morning, wasn't it? Sunday yep. morning was a Sunday morning. The old, um, the old church. Yes, the old um, former island uh, Basing Street Studios, um, which had been taken over probably by Trevor Horn at that point. Hadn't they? Yeah, Trevor, Trevor it was Horn Trevor Horn Studio. Yeah, in this place. And, uh, yeah, so I turned up and you turned up, and uh, well, our expectations were somewhat low, weren't they, really? But I remember being amazed by the, the level of celebrity uh, there and also amazed by the combination, the age difference between some of them, which seemed at the time so huge. I remember the first people I met were, were Rick Parfit, who was 36 at the time, uh, Francis Rossi was 35. Phil Collins was 33. And they seemed like knackered, superannuated old the older generation. Compared to <laughs> Banana Rama, Duran Duran, Paul Weller, etc., who were all about 26, which seems absolutely absurd now. Actually, Geldof himself was 33 and Sting was 33, but somehow they were new wave and they didn't quite count as the old guard. But there was another interesting thing about it was that back then, uh, Puppies were divided up into different camps. Now it's one big happy family, isn't it? Everybody gets on, everybody's friendly towards each other. But then it was so huge and there was room for everybody and everyone was making hay. And they all took pot shots at each other, didn't they? Everyone had to go at each other. Um, you know, uh, Spandau Ballet and Duran used to tear strips off each other. 
Everybody oh hated you too. <laughs> Everybody loathed Phil Collins and status quo. And it was so odd to see them all together. Paul Weller particularly was always sounding off about everybody because he thought he was more principled and authentic and, and real than, than a lot of the other acts. You know, like I remember him saying to me uh, that uh, he said, everyone's ignoring me. No one's talking to me and I don't blame them. You know, I can remember Gary Kemp saying uh, loudly that it was a ploy by Island Records to get every pop star except Frankie goes to Hollywood into one room and blow the place up. But it was really rather thrilling, wasn't it? Don't you think that 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 number of people together and and just watching them going in and having to record, and how much you felt for people doing those individual lines, because you know uh, they all had to go and record with all their peers watching, didn't they? Paul Young, mm. Bono, Tony Hadley, and Boy George, and everybody, a bit like stepping up to take a penalty. So a lot of tension. It must uh, it must be extraordinary for those people who are in it because they must be able to just look back at it as the day in their lives, mustn't they? You know yeah. what I mean? You know, even if you're as big as Boy George, it never got any bigger than that. You know, no. that was the that was the moment of their of their maximum celebrity. God, I can remember did anybody? Did anybody? Did anybody? Did anybody in that lineup get bigger afterwards? Um, probably not, actually. There you go. No, probably not. I mean, it was. I, I remember Boy George being told at you know nine in the morning our time to get over. He was in America and getting on the Concorde. Yeah. Seemed so glamorous at the time, and arriving at six o'clock in the evening with his crimson hair, and swanning in and seeing Marilyn there and going, "Hello, Doris." And Marilyn, that I mean, Marilyn certainly didn't get big. They go, Marilyn they wasn't go. invited, if I remember rightly. He just <laughs> managed to sneak in. You know, why would he? If you didn't invite Frankie Goes to Hollywood, uh, but you did invite Marilyn, that wouldn't make any sense at all. You sneak, snuck in there and uh, got into all the pictures and added a vocal, you know. But no, I think probably peak moment for all of them. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So, Mark, you've got something you want to say about Get Back that you haven't said already. <laughs> well, no, it's just it's, it's interesting seeing uh, the odd review that suggests that it's not, not that it matters. I mean, I mean, I don't know how influential reviews are anymore, but the, the odd review suggesting that it's, it's quite hard work. Of course it's hard work. It's because it's hard work. If you if you if you hadn't sat down and thought, am I the kind of person that wants to watch eight hours of the Beatles? You know what I mean? I made a decision. <laughs> if you think, oh, that might be quite interesting. Would you watch an eight hour film about anything that you're mildly interested in? Probably not. I mean, the point is that, yes, there are inordinate amounts of kind of waffle and and uh, of frippery. And in the middle of that, you get amazing moments. I'm at the middle, I still haven't seen the whole thing, but I mean, they, they do sound like there's some fantastic bits. The Magic Alex stuff sounds absolutely wonderful. There's a bit where, where Lennon apparently takes delivery of a ridiculous bass guitar with a revolving double-sided neck. I'd love to see that. And where Lennon and his white Rolls Royce with a TV aerial on the top gets a parking ticket. All that stuff sounds brilliant. But I mean, you know, if, if you're having to wade through, uh, you think you're wading through stuff to pick those moments out, then you're probably not the kind of person you should be watching in the first place. My feeling is, my feeling is, they probably should have done two versions. You know, an eight hour version, because it would be absolutely lamentable and morally wrong not to include as much of this unique and historic footage as possible, if it exists. And therefore they should, for completists and complete addicts like us, have done an eight-hour version, which we will all see and we will all really enjoy. 
uh, and we will approach knowing precisely what we're getting into and then maybe done a kind of two hour edit for cinemas for the broader public who've just got a passing interest in the Beatles. I don't know. It's, I mean, Mark Lewison's book, Mark Lewison's book comes out in two versions, doesn't it? The, the first uh, volume in the trilogy. You know, there's a 900... Got the air, airport paperback. Yes, the airport paperback. The, the, the flick-through the, the version. The pocket book. 960 yes. pages. And then there's a 1,728-page monster edition if you want the unedited version. Well, if you're the kind of person who decided you do, you buy it. it makes complete sense. Okay. So while we're being controversial... <laughs> Have you seen the story about the Brit Awards combining the male and female categories? Oh yeah, in yeah. In, in one, uh, yeah. Because I read I read the story here at uh, the BBC website. It says Dua Lipa and Jay Huss will go down in history as the last stars to win Best Female and Male at the Brit Awards. I thought that's quite funny. There's two two names like Dua Lipa and Jay Huss because there's no clue in either of those names. As to, the, as to the sex of either of the people, yeah. you know, so they could be could be male, could be female. Uh, artists like Sam Smith and Will Young had previously called for the change, saying the current system excludes non-binary artists. And so, you know, it just struck me as absolutely strange because surely you're going to reduce the number of potential winners, aren't you? Because... <laughs> It, it struck me that all attempts to make prizes, particularly show business prizes, more fair are by definition doomed because there is something about show business prizes that works because it's not fair. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. if you want to prove who's the most popular, it's quite simple. You just add up all the sales figures at the end of the year and it's Adele or whatever it is. You know, that's quite simple. And, you know, people are quite happy to be beneficiaries of that unfairness. But, but to get complain very, loudly about very it. Very arsy if they're, <laughs> if they're left out. It's completely subjective. It's, it's like Great British Bake Off. <laughs> Of course it is. That's what fair. we like about it. You yeah, know? yeah. And, uh, you know, all these moves. I see the Turner Prize is now dominated by collectives, isn't it? You know, which must must make the people who invented the Turner Prize, which is obviously the Contemporary Art Prize, must make them want to tear their hair out. Because when they invented it, however many years ago it was, it's pretty much like the Booker Prize for fiction. What they wanted to do was say, okay, out of this massive area with loads and loads of names, we pluck one. We pluck one, and that one becomes the beneficiary of the public spotlight, and everybody knows who they are. And the same thing applies with the book or whatever. It doesn't work if it's collective. No, it doesn't. And if, it, if it's shared between three collectives, no. you've lost that impact. It doesn't have that completely. sense of personality. Absolutely, because his personality is what it's all about. It's a, you know, it's like, you know, everybody works in some business where they go along once a year to the Grosvenor House or God knows what, or the NEC, and people give out awards for the, you know, most competitive, most innovative plumber in the West Midlands in, in 2021 or whatever it is. It's subjective. Of course it is. That's what we like about it, you know. So trying to make it somehow more fair or more equal just sort of doesn't work. 
Well, and it's so, partly Sam Smith driving it, isn't it? Because Sam Smith is, is kind of non-binary. Well, that's what he said. And identifies yeah, but, as they, them, and therefore yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah. feel that they, you know, fit into either category or whatever. But I would have thought that you ultimately finish up with less awards, which is a bad thing. This is <laughs> Surely. Yeah. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. Okay, so this week we had uh, the comeback of Word of Your Ears, the live event, uh, which we did at a small venue, the West Hampstead Arts Club, with Peter Doggett, who's written a book about sex in the 1960s, and John Ilsley of Dire Straits, written a memoir of his time with Dire Straits. And, um, and later in the week we spoke um, to, uh, to Lenny Kay, the great Lenny Kay, the venerable rock critic, scene-ster, guitarist with Patti Smith since the year dot, whatever, about his new book, Lightning Strikes, which is about um, 10 places and times in rock history when everything changed. And it struck me those two have got something in common or it made me think about, about similar things, Mark. We were talking to John Hillsley about will Dire Straits ever get back together? And he said he, he thought it was unlikely, and he thought it was it was fine that they didn't get back together again because well, they all got on with each yeah, other. Yeah, they said that no, he was, said the, the important thing to him was his friendship with Mark Knopfler, and he thought yeah. that might be endangered if they then got the group back together again. That was far more important than him than going back on the road, which I thought was a really interesting point. Actually, I, I thought it was really interesting. yeah, really touching. Point. And it struck me, yeah, that uh, you, you were going to say that Lenny Kay and Patti Smith clearly Lenny still Kay. adore each other. Don't I mean. They? The, I mean the thing the thing about Lenny Kay, and please do go and watch that. You know, it's it's on YouTube now. Um, because he is a sweetheart. He just Absolutely is adorable guy. <laughs> Absolute sweetheart. And you can't help thinking that it's because he's a sweetheart that that whole thing has stayed together for as long as it has, which is since 1974, 75, or whatever. Yeah. Been some kind of Panty Smith group. And he's pretty much, I think he's probably the glue. And I think a lot of the glue there is, is his personality as much as anything else. You know? Yeah, completely. He reminded me a little bit of Dave Stewart, actually. Those people who are never completely in the spotlight. They're never in the front line. And therefore, nobody ever feels any sense of competition. And they're really, yeah. really sweet-natured and uh, collaborative and cooperative and really interested in music and have huge record collections. And they're not, yeah, they're not, a, they're not a competition to anybody. And therefore, they just develop an enormous number of friends. Incredible guy, really, really sweet, and lovely. What he was saying about his record collection that he has, he, has, he divides up his record collection into food groups, doesn't he? Either the major one, food groups, yeah. One section called called Wacko, where he just decides to put in really insane stuff. It's amazing. But the well, Dire Straits, see, I I always think of him as the, the kind of ultimate record collector because he was. I was looking. He did the compilation album Nuggets, which came out in yeah. nineteen seventy two which is the very beautifully uh, packaged and very lovingly put together compilation of kind of garage rock, I suppose, psychedelic garage rock from, from America in the 60s. And I think it, I said to him during, during this chat, and I was, it was said it flippantly, but actually I think it's probably true, he kind of invented retro with that album, really. You know, yeah. the, whole, the whole world of kind of mojo and uncut, and all that, all that stuff where you go back and you take kind of, you know, chin-stroking interest in, in, in cheap, cheap entertainment from years earlier. 
all comes out of out of Lenkei and Nuggets. And so he's a man who's been collecting records since probably the 50s, whatever. He always wanted, what did he say? He always wanted to be the tenor in a doo wop group. Yes. That was, that's how far back he goes. And, I know. And that's so interesting that doo wop was one of the things he was listening to, wasn't it? In fact, doo wop, yeah. interestingly, was the thing he wrote an article about for a New York uh, paper that Patti Smith read and got in touch with him when he worked at, uh, at a record shop and said, I want to meet you because I love doo wop too. And that was the kind of connection between the two of them. Frank Zappa. But also, he, goes, he also goes back far enough that he was talking about having seen the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And he was, he probably was about 17, I think, at the time. And he says he was just, he just learned a load of chords to play in a folk group, hadn't he? Because he was, right. he was in, in the late, later end of the kind of Peter, Paul, and Mary Kingston trio yeah. boom and so forth. And suddenly the Beatles came along, oh, throw away the folk guitar, you know, get, uh, you know, go, go electric overnight. Really, really interesting person. And, um, just, you know, can I read just two or three lines out of the book? Here's a little bit where you first meet him in his book, which is called uh, Lightning Striking. And he's 12 years old. This just gives you an idea of how connected with pop culture he is and with music. He says, uh, describes a picture that he has of himself, age 12 in Brooklyn. He says, My sleeves are rolled up on my short sleeved shirt. My hair is parted on the left side, combed to the right, held in slope by wild root cream oil. And I'm wearing a pair of ripple-soled shoes. There's a keychain looped along my right leg and into my front pocket, a stylistic remnant of the Zoot Suit era. I think, imagine being that aware of all that pop culture, yeah. you know, at the yeah. age of 12. It's absolutely, it's a fantastic book, I think. So, John uh, Ilsley, I was gonna, oh, go on. Go yeah. on. I was going to say, John Ilsley, it struck me that... Um, it, I always thought that Gary Talent of the E Street Band had the greatest job in the world. You know, uh, you're on there, no real responsibility, playing some bass parts, none of them particularly demanding. You're not required to do any kind of showcase. There's no point in the evening when the spotlight's on you. I don't think you even sing any backing vocals. John Ilsley has had exactly the same gig. That wonderful sense of playing to these huge, huge stadiums. And, uh, and at one point he said they played 248 gigs. These are stadium gigs in one year in 23 different countries. So he's doing all right for a living, you know. No backing vocals, not required to write any songs, not required really to even do any press or do any of the promotion. Just the guy in the band, just, you know, there and thoroughly enjoy. I thought what an amazing, what an amazing life that would have been. Don't you think? Sensation. Oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. What, a, what a gig. Anyway, to climax on a chat with Lenny Kay, I was we were doing it, and I was I was sitting in front of my big rack of records, which is obviously nothing like as big as a rack of records as Lenny Kay will have. And he said, "Well, just just reach around, pick one out, and we'll see what it is." And so, if you want to see what it is, you've got to go and look at the you've got to go and look at the clip online. And if you wanted to see what these things are, you know, earlier than anybody else, you can uh, you know you can make sure. To support us on Patreon, uh, which we very much appreciate. If you go to patreon.com, word in your ear, there are full details of how you can do that. The Word Podcast. Clearly, there is no plan. Okay, any other business? And we're joined once again by Alex Gold. And Alex uh, has triggered the next item, which is the um, the <laughs> return of the Statwater game. Because uh, well, last week we were... That's why we've been moaning the fact of the ridiculous proliferation of mad categories in record shops that exist purely to bamboozle innocent members of the public. And Alex was contributing to this. And he says, for instance, there's spatula core. And 
And uh, Mark and I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then afterwards, I thought, spatula cord. <laughs> he just <laughs> made that up. I thought, that's a good reason for the return of the Sackbody game. So, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Alex Gold is going to give us, what, five or something like that? Yeah, I've five musical genres, four of which are real and one is is uh, is fictitious. Is that right? Uh, yeah. that, that's precisely it. And, and here they are. So okay. your five five musical genres okay. are Simpson Wave. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Carry on. Go on. Pirates Metal. <laughs> Squee, spelt S-K-W, three E's. Boggle. And Witch House. As in, as in pointy hat and broom. Which oh, I, you know, I think I've heard of pirate metal. I don't know. I may be wrong because there was what was one Simpson Simpson Corner S- Simpson, Simpson Wave Simpson Simpton. Wave. That sounds suspicious to me. Simpson Wave Squee Squee seems possible too. Ogle. Ogle. All right. I'm gonna. I, shall I go first? Go I think I think Boggle is the ringer. Okay. I think it's Simpson Wave. But go on. Right. Well, I can tell you right now that the ringer is drum roll, Boggle. Okay, <laughs> it is Boggle. Boggle in my head is 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 a cousin of Gabba with bass frequencies so drastic and deep that it actually messes with the synapses in the brain and confuses people. <laughs> yet, yet to be invented. But I've got a, I've got a whole brief written out for the genre. So um. But um, yeah, all the others are absolutely genuine. Uh, so Simpson Wave uh, apparently emerged in 2016 and so combined sampled audio and video from The Simpsons with an obsession with 1990s internet aesthetics, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, astonishing. Uh, pirate metal uh, is uh, my new favourite genre, even though I haven't heard a note of it. Um Basically, what it is, it's sea shanties sung like shrieks oh, in a, in a oh, metal this style. Good. This is good. But, but accompanied uh, by folk instruments. Yeah, so yeah. You've got a screamer accompanied by a concertina or something like that. Um, squee um, is, is a Swedish uh, genre. How are you Appar- spelling squee again? That's brilliant. S K W E E E. Of course it is. Go and on. it's. Pre- Predominantly instru- instrumental, and it sort of merges synth, uh, synth and bassline with funk and soul rhythms. And, and the, the name comes from the idea of sort of squeezing out the like the, the yeah. grooviest possible sound. Um, and Witch House is <laughs> it's not as cool as it sounds actually. Um, Witch House is is basically um, it's it's chopped and chopped songs that, uh, that incorporate goth and shoegaze and hip hop um and industrial how sad it is that i've missed that mark yeah i know i've had a hole in my life i feel actually. i ought to get into witch house okay mark have you got you got a i have five this, genres one of which okay. is fictitious and they are chip tune chip tune <laughs> power stomp lento violento mathcore and Soya Billy. <laughs> so there we are. What's the last one? So what's the Soya Billy? Soya Billy. Billy. <laughs> yep. So they are. I'll give them to you again. They are Power Stomp, Chip Tune, Lento Violento, Mathcore, and Soya Billy. 
Spot okay, the ringer. Alex, are you going to choose the ringer, Alex? Uh, I'm pretty sure mathcore is a, is a genuine genre. If I, if I was a betting man, I really want to believe Sawyer Billy is a real thing and become part of that movement. Um, <laughs> I will go for, I, I reckon chip tunes are ringer, you know. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm gonna go for I'm gonna go for Sawyer Billy. All right, Mark. <laughs> I go must on. admit I thought it was blatantly obvious that it was Sawyer Billy. Sawyer there is made up. <laughs> uh, for uh, me, in my head, it's a draped jacketed rock and roll revival from a Bristol-based community of vegan musicians. <laughs> and among the stars of the groups there are Zupa Toscana, Tofu Fighters, and the Laska Soup Dragons. Very but, uh, good. But no, it's completely it's completely made up. No, the real ones are Chip Tune, yeah, which is an eight bit music style of synthesized electronic music, etc. Uh, I Fight Dragons and Starship Amazing. Power Stomp is a kind of uh, British hardcore coined by DJ Kurt in two thousand and seven. Lento Violento is slowed down Italian techno from two thousand and ten. Uh, which is real and mathcore in the 1990s. Uh, bands in the genre emphasize complex and fluctuant rhythms through the use of irregular time signatures, polymeters, syncopations, and tempo change. So, yeah, there you go. Wow. You, you rumble me. It was a bit obvious. Sawyer <laughs> Billy. I'd like the so, idea. Of Sawyer Billy. Question so, so, that's the return of um, the Stagwaddy game. Um, nice to nice to see. Uh, questions from the massive. Um, Poppy's from a tray says interested in your thoughts on Alan Hull of Lindisfarne and his place in the list of great English songwriters after seeing the BBC Four documentary last night, which you did, Mark Ellen. I did see it. I, I, I'd forgotten how fantastic he was. He's really nice. All the old uh, Geordie community, uh, Jimmy Nail and uh, Sting, Dave Stewart. And also, actually, Peter Gabriel was on there because, of course, the Charisma tour when they all uh, when they all went on a package tour together, and they were all, uh, you know, making the point that he was up there in the kind of great pantheon of, of English songwriters alongside Ray Davis. I've forgotten how good he was. He's fantastic, actually. It's an amazing story, an incredible story. And uh, was he because he's no longer with us, is he? No, he's he, not. Um, he he became a Labour councillor, didn't he? Didn't I he? think he did. I did. I should have looked him up. I he think he did. did yeah, yeah he, he was on the council for you know in middle age. Yes, useful member of society in all in all respects. Absolutely, I think fair to say. Okay, Harper a Monkey says any more obvious examples of musicians doing a Billy Preston? No doubt in the in the light of Get Back. That is brought into a tight pre-existing unit, reinvigorating them and reinvigorating them and saving them, even if only temporarily, from themselves. Good question. Good I'd question. Suggest, Any nominations? Go on, yeah, Alex. I'd nominate Craig Gannon joining the Smiths. That's and, a good. Uh, that's a good thought. Because they became a five-piece at the end, didn't they? They did, and they imploded not long after. I don't think. Um, in fact, I think when they were on whistle test, right at the end, I think they were a five-piece then. Because there, you know, there was a lot of friction, wasn't there? And they just, <laughs> like Billy Preston, did someone in there to make sure everyone was on their best behaviour. I think. In, I don't in, know. In, in fact, I think Johnny Marr left, and they and Craig Gannon, well, the Craig Gannon four piece were, were 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 a thing for a little bit, and then they imploded. So, um, but yeah, I've got a nomination from slightly further back. Dave Swarbrick joining Fairport Convention kept Fairport Convention going. You know, because had, had he not joined, you know, Sandy Denny would have gone, Richard Thompson would have gone, and they would probably have fallen apart at that stage. Whereas Dave Swarbrick came in there and was slightly different. Yeah, that's a good And one. was a new kind of yeah. front man. 
So yeah. he did that job. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question, and people may well have other answers, and that's fine. And uh, Gareth um, says, any great albums or songs that reflect the drudgery of office life? When it's tried, usually by the uh, the great divine comedy, they show that musicians don't really understand the daily routine of most of their audiences, uh, which is, you know, it's an interesting question. And somebody somebody responded, these are, these are all on Twitter, somebody responded on Twitter, that obviously Fountains of Wayne, um, with songs Bright like uh, Bright Future in Sales and Little Red Light. But that's and, a really you know, good example of that because that's not a song about doing the job. It's a, guy, a song about a guy being so hungover, isn't it, that he's not able to do his presentation. So it didn't it didn't imply that they knew much about the work world that he he was meant to exist in. But I suppose yeah. also the world the world of work has changed so much in the last 20, 30 years, hasn't it? That the older you know, People used to write songs about working, but it was physical work, wasn't it? That yeah. they wrote about swinging a pick or working on the highway, all that kind of stuff. Chain game. Whereas nowadays, nowadays people are working in call centers or you know things of that nature, yeah. which you know nobody's uh, nobody can can find a way to kind of romanticize. But I suppose you you, you have the old um, the old classics, the old staples like Friday on My Mind by the Easy Beats is obviously. You know the the great song about you know the five day grind and looking so forth. forward to the weekend. About, yeah, yeah. looking forward to the weekend. That's what those those songs those songs tend to be about. Brian Stevens says, "What was the first use of the f word in popular song?" Well, that's a good oh. question. I mean, I can tell you what. I I don't know the answer, but I can tell you the first time I came across it in the sense of. It was on a a normally released record that I actually bought, and that was Al Stewart's Love Chronicles. Oh yes, yes, yes. Which was I mean, what sixty seven or sixty eight? I can't remember. It was, and that uh, I do recommend. It was less about <laughs> the F word you, and more about making if, love. Oh, well, if you if you if you want a thumping good laugh, actually, and I like quite like Al Stewart, but you know. Go and listen to Love Chronicles because he had an album called Love Chronicles. And the whole second side of Love Chronicles was taken up by one song, which is basically about all his girlfriends. All the women he slept with. It's all just bragging, women. basically, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And, uh, and we used to sit there and listen to them. Oh, God, she sounds nice. Oh, she sounds like a nightmare. Verse five. Yeah, oh, dear. Yeah. You dodged a bullet there. And... Uh, and uh, but at the final, as he got towards the end, you know, he matured, <laughs> and uh, and in, in, in this in this verse near the end, he says, "Grew to be less like fucking and more like making, like making love." love. We, we all see, we all just nod sagely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we yes. did too. <laughs> Having absolutely no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> I know. Working class so, hero was the one that made the most. Uh, the most, most oh, ways, yes. wasn't it? But that was a lot later. That was, you know, when was that? Was 70, 71? I can't remember. 70. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be, it's not that much later, I yeah. suppose. Um, Darren Leithley says, what's left in the Beatles well other than Carnival of Light? Nothing, surely. Mark. Can't be anything. There can't be anything. Can't be anything at all. So those are your questions, which we, we're grateful for. Alex, anything to add? We got new Patreon supporters whose names you'd like to you'd like to list. Yes, we have. Um, 
like to welcome aboard uh, Peter Joslin. Goodbye. Hello, Peter. Well, I, I, I'm very sorry. I haven't got a ship's whistle. I, I keep, <laughs> I've been threatening for two years now to announce to the arrival of new patrons with a bosun's whistle and haven't been able to actually put my hands on one yet, but I will do at some stage. Carry on. Or a deafening applause button you can just press. It's just a burst yeah. of applause. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Carry um, on. Uh, Jerry Hillman. Thank you, Hello, Jerry. Jerry. Mino Erasmo Russo. Very good. Nino, good excellent. Toby Go Mitchell. On. Hello, Toby. Very nice to see you. Kevin Ray. Hello, Kevin also. Mark Lamming. Mark Lamming. Nicole what a delight Barker. Yeah. Sorry, Nicole, Nicole Barker. Niall Taylor. Niall Taylor. Come on, they're flooding him. Come uh, on. David Merriweather. David, what a fine name, David that Merriweather. Is. Sounds like uh, it's something from Rivendell, doesn't it? It yeah. does, it does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and these are annual patrons. Next, uh, of course, if you subscribe right. annually, you get a 15% discount, which is, of course, not to be sniffed at. Uh, Paul Absolutely. Kent. Paul Very Kent. Nice. Hello, Paul. Philip so we were Davenport. seeing Paul on the occasion of his day. We were seeing these people on the occasion of their birthdays, weren't we? Uh, actually, no, that will be the Access All Areas patrons. All oh, right, okay, yes. sorry. All right, fine. Okay, uh, carry on. Philip Davenport. Yep, very good. Hello, Philip. Jonathan Beggs. Hello, Jonathan. Bill Ambrose. Hello, Bill. Have you come from? Direct from the Archers. <laughs> <laughs> He's not Paul... heard that before. <laughs> and Paul Bernays. Paul Bernays, I do like your sauce. Um, <laughs> So uh, lovely to have them all aboard, uh, the good ship word in your ear. And uh, if you'd like to join them, as we say, go to patreon.com word in your ear. And there will be more fun going forward. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>